A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Did you know, on average, heating your home makes up 82% of your energy bill? Installing a smart thermostat could save you a lot of money and be good for the planet. Honeywell Home have been making the home smarter and more comfortable for over a hundred years and their trusted smart thermostats help you get control wherever you are. And because they work with Google and Alexa, you can simply change the heating with your voice. Installing a smart thermostat doesn't have to be confusing or time consuming, so why not visit getconnected.honeywellhome.com to find out more. Hello and welcome to the brand new Pocketlint podcast sponsored by Honeywell Home from Residio, making the smart home simpler. My name is Stuart Miles and each week the team and I are going to be looking at the biggest stories in tech, interviewing some really interesting people and walking you through the big decisions you should factor in when buying the latest gadgets. Coming up this week, we talk all things Google I.O. with Pocketlint editor Chris Hall. I take a ride in a half a million pound Rolls-Royce Phantom to check out the sound system. And we talk to Mike and Britt on the team to find out what the best fitness tracker on the market is. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. This week we saw Google's big annual developer show where it uses that platform to excite the developers, get everybody up and running on new developments. Chris, you're with me. You were following it closely when it happened. What are your three big things from the conference? Well, Google I.O. is a huge developer conference, and Google uses it in a way that will showcase everything that's coming in the future as well as making some announcements for now. The biggest thing that really came out of it is something that people aren't really talking about, which is the natural language processing system that they use. And you'll have encountered that. It's what drives Google Assistant, and it's what leads into and facilitates a lot of other services that Google offers. Now, the big news here is that they have managed to reduce the amount of data needed for that service down from 100 gigabytes to half a gigabyte. What does that mean? It means that you don't have to send all of your information to the cloud and then get your results back. You can host everything on the device. Now, this is hugely significant because it means that Google Assistant would be able to run on your phone without a data connection. It would mean that it was much more immediate. It means there's no data demand. It means that there is uh, much increased privacy because you're not sending anything to the cloud and storing it there. I presume that would also mean increased speed in the ability to return the results or act on your behalf if you've asked it. Exactly. The demonstration that they gave was just a um, a seamless questioning of the phone, setting up a whole range of tasks, getting it to do all of these things, Send mum a text message to ask what time we're coming for dinner. Turn on the lights at the back. How much fuel do I have in my car? All of this is a continuous conversation. Now, that sounds exciting. Is that coming to everybody straight away, or is this a pie-in-the-sky idea that we're going to have to wait 15 years for? Well, the best thing about it is that Google has already said that it's going to be coming to Pixel devices first or later this year. So I imagine that's going to be on the Pixel 4. And Google have been very good in the past at launching it on a new device and then suddenly granting access to this to other people. So there's a high probability that this will appear for all Google Assistant users at some point in the future. Now, let's talk about those future users. They also talked about Android Q. Are there any major developments there? That's right. Android Q is heavily into its development process, and it's available as a beta. 
And this is really for developers to prepare their apps and services ready for the new factors that are going to come into the new platform. But everybody can get access to it if they have the right phone. One of the big announcements from Google I.O. was that they are expanding it from just the Pixel devices to 21 devices in total from 13 different manufacturers. So OnePlus is on the list, Xiaomi is on the list, Huawei is on the list, Sony is on the list. Does that mean I should have a play, or is it going to like completely destroy my phone if I install this? Well, the important thing to know about it is that it is, it is unreleased software. It's for developers to develop their apps and services, and there are parts of it that don't function, and there will be parts in there that don't make it into the final release, as well as a lot of functions that are being reserved for the final release of the software. So it's stable enough for you to use day-to-day, but it's probably not going to give you a premium experience like the current release of Pi. Now... I saw also within that announcement of Android Q, there was something about dark theme, dark mode. There seems to be a general trend of that. Is that something we should be excited about or is it a whatever? It's a bit of a whatever. People are talking about dark mode. Apple's added it on the Mac and it's come to a lot of different apps. You've been able to get it on Android in various different forms. For example, you could set a dark wallpaper on your Pixel and that would then push out a dark theme in some areas of the phone. This is going to be more of a sort of toggle option. You can go along, press the button, and everything goes dark. Now, we've seen, so we've got natural processing, language processing. We've got Android Q coming to a number of devices, hopefully later this year, fall, as the Americans like to say. That's right, yeah. New hardware? There's new hardware too, and there's a whole load of new hardware. And it's very interesting what Google are doing because they announced two new phones, the Pixel 3a and the Pixel 3a XL, which essentially brings in these Pixel devices at a lower price point. And we're talking from £399, $399 for their new phone. The big selling point about this phone is that it has basically exactly the same camera technology as the full-scale Pixels. And this is a highly rated camera that people have been raving about for a long time. It uses a lot of AI to smooth out a lot of problems to make sure that you get good photos day or night. It's excellent with portraits and it can produce some very good zoom. The real question though is, is, it, is, is this phone offering you enough compared to some of the cheaper devices that are coming out of China? For example, things like the, uh, the Mi 9. If you take that phone, you have a lot more power, you have a lot more functionality and Let's be honest, you, you get a better design too. So it's, it's interesting that Google are releasing the devices now, and it's perhaps telling that they haven't sold as many full-size pixels as they wanted to, and they realise they need to offer it at a lower price. I was going to say, do you think this is about lowering the barrier to entry for a Google-specific product, or do you think it's that they've realised that they've not sold enough Pixel 3s, and therefore they've got to try and do something and therefore it's like well we'll just make it cheaper and that will work I think I think it is the latter being dressed up as the former so I think that they have said we haven't sold very many phones let's say that they're going to be more accessible by introducing them at a lower price point but if you rewind all the way back to October last year when the Pixels were announced it was two weeks after that that the prototype for the Pixel 3a first leaked so that tells us that it was well in development at that time. Do you think it was something that probably came out of the HTC buyout? That it was a could be a HTC device that they've just rebadged and thought we might as well use this? Potentially. Or it may be they just didn't know exactly where to position these phones. Um, there's a lot of talk about trying to appeal to some of the sort of developing markets where people don't have as much money to spend on phones. But those are the areas where these Chinese brands are exceptionally strong. Now, it wasn't just phones. There was a Nest, Google, Hub, Max, Pro, Mega, whatever? Exactly, yes. Google, (laughs) 
acquired Nest a few years ago, and they are now merging those two lines. And they have released a new home hub, except now they're calling it a Nest Hub. And they're calling it the Nest Hub Max because they're increasing the size from the original Google Home Hub that they launched last year. It'll now be a 10-inch display rather like the Amazon Echo Show. Um, but the Nest side of it really comes in because they're integrating a camera into the front. And, surprise, surprise, it has full Nest functionality, which means that it can watch over your home, it can alert you to intruders, it can do all of that stuff that Nest will do built into this display device. Cool, thank you very much. Still to come, we check out the best fitness trackers on the market. Definitely accuracy of the tracking itself. Battery life is quite important. Cost is quite a big deal with a lot of them. And the platform that they tie into on your phone is something I definitely consider looking at properly before you buy one. This week, I stepped out of the office to visit Rolls-Royce's project manager, Dave Monks, at the company's UK factory based in the Sussex countryside. Rolls-Royce has been making cars at its state-of-the-art factory in Goodwood since 2003. And as you might imagine, everything is custom-built and everything is bespoke to how you want it. Whether that's choosing paint that features a thousand crushed diamonds to give it an extra sparkle or ensuring the light pattern on the roof is an exact replica of the night sky on a certain date, the company has you covered. To showcase just how quiet the Phantom is, even though it has a 6.5 V12 engine under the hood, we jumped in the back and went for a ride. I ensure that the vehicle that we engineer is appropriate for our customer. Um, so I filter through all of the systems, all of the electronics, the drivetrain, the chassis systems, and ensure that we're building a true Rolls-Royce that delivers what we expect our customers want to receive. Now, one of the things we've come down to talk to you about today is this sort of sense of you've created this bespoke sound system. Um, I've been listening to it on the way down in this Phantom. It, it sounds incredible. How do you go about creating that? Unlike most automotive audio systems, we had to start right at the beginning, right at the fundamental stage of the vehicle development. So from the very first development of our aluminium space frame architecture, uh, we had to consider the impact of um, the acoustic properties of the materials we use, the acoustic properties of the interior of the vehicle. And so we really factor these things in right from the beginning of the development rather than tagging it onto the car later on. And so how does that, so does that change everything from, does that even go down to the glass that you use in the car or is that yes, absolutely. Is it just sort of thinking, oh, we'll just put an extra bit of padding here or there? No, 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 not at all. So we try to avoid um, those um, sticking plaster patches to make a car sound better. So we have to engineer the car to be supremely quiet and have a very high acoustic performance from the very fundamental get-go. Um, so from the choice of material we build the chassis from, so the car's built from an aluminium structure. Um, aluminium has a very, very favourable acoustic impedance. Um, it also allows us to build structures um, that we can factor into the uh, audio system development. So, for example, the sill sections on the car are the tuned um, air cavities for the subwoofers. Um, the speaker system is actually connected to the sill of the car. Then the next layer up is the materials on the inside, so sound deadening materials to damp any noises coming through. Um, acoustic glass, so we have double glazed um, glass with a nearly perfect acoustic performance. And so really we're developing a studio as well as a car. <laughs> it's quite, it must be quite a tough job. What's the, what do you feel is the sort of toughest part of that? You 
have to get a balance between creating this perfect anechoic studio and creating a vehicle that's enjoyable to drive and be a passenger in. And that can start off to be a little bit conflicting. We found that if we made the car completely silent, which is very good for the audio system, it becomes a little bit disorientating to drive. You have lost a sensation of speed. You have a, you lose the sensation uh, that you're being transported, and that can uh, bring on a sort of nausea. Um, so we deliberately allow some sound into the car. So in a a, a proportional increase in uh, aer- aerodynamic sounds as the car uh, pushes on. Um, and some intrusion of engine noise when you accelerate hard. Um, but under a normal cruising condition with minimal um, dynamic inputs, uh, we want the car to be as silent as possible so that the passengers can enjoy a conversation like this without having to raise your voice or enjoy the, the music they're listening to. And do you think that's important to customers? Is that one of the key things that a Rolls-Royce customer comes along and says, oh, I need this to sound good? Or is it about, you know, because most people when they think about cars, they instantly go, oh, it's got to drive good. And they, the kind of the audio comes second. Um, it's about effortlessness with the Rolls-Royce. We want to be able to sit here and have a conversation without raising a voice. I want to be able to talk to Matt in the front without shouting over to him, um, taking all the stress out of the situation. If you've decided to listen to your uh, favourite track, some of mine are on the system in front of you, don't want to have to strain your ear to hear certain notes and tones that um, you expect from your home audio system Um, and if to deliver that supreme effortless product um, yes it is important it could be the customer doesn't think about that when they purchase the car it could be they don't think hey i want this perfectly silent car for an amazing audio system Uh, but they should come away from the product uh, delighted with what they received. Now, talking to different manufacturers of speakers, not necessarily for cars, but elsewhere, I've interviewed George, um, Charles Martin, for example, in the past, they talk about a certain sound and a certain sound stage mm-hmm. and this idea that sometimes sometimes your companies go for a natural sound. If you look at something like Beats, for example, they go for a very bass-heavy sound. Is there a, is there a sort of a, a makeup that you've tried to create or have you gone for sort of a natural approach? Or um, We wanted the different tracks we listen to to sound how you expected them to sound in their native environment so on the track list i showed you we have a lot of very heavy rock music which i would listen to in a live concert environment you want the sound to be full of energy and coming from a stage that's directly in front of you because you're looking at the band playing not from the footwells of the car so we want the sound to be high up in the car you're looking up at a stage um, there's also some drum music um, that's uh, we want that to sound uh, as if it comes from all directions around you a complete immersion in that music um, so we haven't made a particularly fussy system we don't want it that the customer can configure a thousand different ways of listening of course do some very scientific measurements frequency responses and uh, we're sweeping different frequencies up and down the speakers and we're scientifically interested in how the vehicle performs and if there's any absence of a frequency or any additional frequency from a resonance in a panel or something Um, of course we do those things but what was much more important to me and my colleague at the end of the day was that the music we wanted to listen to in the car and we have completely different tastes was both satisfied um, and that the 
sound was correct for what we wanted. We wanted to just make one setting so that the system was correct for everyone. And we couldn't settle on one setting that crossed every kind of music that we could conceive. And so we settled on two settings, uh, a studio mode and an expanded mode. And the studio mode produces a very powerful um, sound stage that's high up in the car and directly in front of you and is fantastic for listening to rock music or acoustic music, music that you would normally see played live. Um, with the artist on stage in front of you and the expanded mode with a all submersive um, sound coming from every direction like you might hear in a club or in a concert hall, something like that. Right, and so what kind of tracks have you put on your list? Have you got like a top ten that you kind of, the go-to list that you want to try things? Yeah, I mean I I tend to use about 15 different um, albums and my colleague is using a similar number we whittled that down to a list of maybe 25 or 30 tracks that we listen to a lot and become very familiar with every note and every tone and every vocal in those particular tracks. So when we're comparing one setting to another, um, we can make a direct comparison because we can so readily recall how it sounded previously. Um, and those tracks range from acoustic rock music to very heavy thrash metal, um, drum solos, some uh, classical music, there's some really nice um, indie music. Um, yeah, there's a whole different selection of things there. And so if I was sitting in my car at home, not necessarily a Rolls-Royce Phantom, although it'd be nice if it was, what would you what's the what's the key track that you think that you should listen to? Go go you know, download it, put it onto your a phone or what have you, play it in your car just to see either how good or how bad your your sound system is in your car. What's what's a really good one? Um <laughs> You're not allowed to judge me. Um, I would listen to Sad But True by Metallica on very high volume. Um, it's a very high energy track with a lot of bass and a lot of treble and a really crisp, aggressive vocal. Um, that track is recorded at a very high quality as well. Um, and if you turn that track right up loud, that really you know, sorts a good hi-fi from a great hi-fi. <laughs> okay, I'm going to try, definitely try that when, uh, when, we, when we finish this interview. So a lot of other car manufacturers have turned to high-end home audio brands, um, thinking like Lynn and uh, Name and Bowers and Wilkins. Obviously, the temptation here wasn't to do that. It was to build it yourself. Why is that? We have an extremely demanding customer expectation to fulfil. And if we do a... Uh, a system development like that ourselves we can ensure that we pick and choose the absolute best components for each application um, so for example we have magnesium ceramic cones on our mid-range speakers and we have subwoofers that are integrated into the chassis sections like I discussed before we have exciter cones so it's a, a coneless speaker built into the headliner to pull the whole sound stage up in the car and if we are free to develop each component of the system as we want to develop it, uh, regardless of who's supplying individual components, we can deliver the ultimate system. So can you walk us through the system? We have a 1,300-watt amplifier with 18 channels driving 18 individual speakers. Um, two of those are subwoofers in the floor. Um, two are exciter speakers in the headliner, which act to lift the soundstage up in the car. And the remaining channels are split between the mid-ranges and the tweeters, which are dotted around uh, on the doors and the parcel shelf, as you can see. 
obviously there's lots of electric cars out there at the moment and they all process to be quieter I drive an electric car it feels considerably quieter Rolls-Royce has a massive V12 engine in the front here is that would it be easier if, if this for you from a sound engineer's point of view if the Rolls was electric yes I mean to some extent reducing the ambient noises is obviously a benefit for us but you know the V12 here is um, very very well um, acoustically isolated it's extremely quiet I suspect the Phantom is quieter than a lot of other electric cars out there um, what's more important for us is isolating rolling noise from the tyres and uh, aeroacoustic noises as air passes over the outer surface of the car um, we do that in two ways um, we can either prevent us prevent a sound at source so we never generate the sound or we isolate the sound by, with uh, acoustic insulations and dampings um, I prefer it when we eliminate the sound at source um, on the Phantom we do that in two ways uh, or the rolling noise we isolate with a uh, very high acoustically performing tyre that's developed specifically for the Phantom. Uh, we have a run-flat technology that uses a, a, a self-sealing gel rather than a stiff sidewall, which means that we don't transmit rolling noises from the road surface back into the car. And inside the tyre we have a foam insulation uh, which damps the sound at source. Um, so we generate a very, very low rolling noise. Uh, we also have 6mm thick acoustic glazing and we develop the vehicle aerodynamically to reduce airflow noises over the surface of the car. So we remove these outside noises, which of course makes it easier to develop a system that performs well when we don't have to fight uh, with competing frequencies. Welcome to the part of the show where we discuss the best bits of kit we reviewed recently in any given area. This week we're looking at fitness trackers and to walk you through the my favourite choices between your Fitbits and your Garmin's, I'm joined by Pocket Lint Features Editor Britta O'Boyle. Hello. And Pocket Lint Reviews Editor Mike Lowe. Hello. The plan is that by the end of this recording, if you're looking to get a fitness tracker, you'll know exactly what you need to get. Britt, let's start with you. Can you give us a quick overview of what we should be looking for in a fitness tracker? Um, definitely accuracy of the tracking itself. Um, battery life is quite important. Um, cost is quite a big deal with a lot of them. And the platform that they tie into on your phone is something I definitely consider looking at properly before you buy one. Um, we were talking before about how these days a lot of phones kind of do you know, tracking of, of the most basic things. So at what point is it best to kind of come in to get a fitness tracker? Do people actually need one if they just want to track their steps? Or like, what is it that you're, you're paying for effectively? A phone will only track your activity if you physically have it on you all of the time. Um, it also won't be as accurate as a wrist-based monitor. Um, so the answer to that question would probably be whether or not you, how much you want from, how much data you want and how accurate you want the data to be yeah. as to whether you need one or not. Um, if you are looking to track the slightly more advanced activity, so running, cycling, hit sessions, any of that kind of thing, then you, you would need a physical device that would enable you to do that, preferably with heart rate tracking on it, because without that, you don't get the same level of... So not everything has a heart rate tracker, and that's, no. do you think that's the, the key feature that these offer? I think it's the key feature that um, is certainly worth 
buying like paying me extra money for mm -hmm. so there's a lot of different features that will come um, you might get connected GPS over built-in GPS um, at the sort of lower end of the market um, but heart rate is something that I don't the, the, the more basic ones aren't they don't give you as much they don't give you as much for your money so you can pay £20 more and get heart rate tracking then you'd get more advanced sleep data you'd get better tracking when it comes to hit sessions or running or anything like that because you'll get it will be able to monitor what you're actually doing as opposed to guessing um, I'm seeing a lot of you know Apple watches on wrists and, and those kind of devices increasingly like with, with that being so popular now is there a reason to consider a fitness tracker? Like, is it for just a certain set of people, or, or could you have both? Would that make any sense? You could have both if you were prepared to wear one on each arm. Couldn't really have them on the same arm. <laughs> um, I have worn both in the past, especially when I've been reviewing them, um, testing how they sort of fare up against each other. I've seen you wear about five. Or I was going to say, I've seen you wear at least, <laughs> at least six, maybe seven. Where we've been doing three peaks, you just had them up both your arms. You're like a, I did, yeah. A fitness tracker that picture has been around somewhere. <laughs> um, but an Apple Watch is about four times more expensive than right. a fitness tracker, or than the Fitbit would, than a Fitbit would be, or a Garmin. So um, you sort of you need to decide whether you want the smartwatch tracking features. If if you want smartwatch features, then Apple Watch is very good at that for iOS users, obviously. And we're, um, we're talking there about you know third party apps and, and yeah. text coming straight through to your wrist yeah. and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, though Fitbit does actually do that, as does Garmin, um, Wyvings too. Um, but Fitbit will only do that if you allow it to, which Apple Watch is similar in that it only will put through what you want to put through, but the notifications, like you won't get sort of payment, um, you can't pay with a Fitbit unless you've got one of the higher end devices, so the Ionic or the Versa range. I keep, um, I keep so bringing up um, Apple and I should probably actually focus on the other devices that are out there because what are kind of the major players in, in fitness tracking market and which of those is preferable and, and why? So Fit, Fitbit is probably the one that most people would have heard of if they were looking for a fitness tracker or if you're in the market for one. Um, Garmin also come into that, um, offering quite a breadth of choice at the same time, Fitbit likewise. Uh, Wythings, uh, they sort of do like an analogue watch that has Fit, that has activity like a small digital screen that then allows for activity tracking at the same time so it kind of does a bit of a bridge it's a bit of a bridging device or they are bridging devices as opposed to the sort of classic bands that you might associate a fitness tracker with and so bearing that in mind so we've got the Fitbits we've got the Garmin's we've got the Wythings Withings however I can't say it however you say it <laughs> we've got those what is in your mind cash no object I'm ready to get into the exciting world of fitness trackers. What am I going to buy, Rita? I would say the Fitbit Charge 3 is probably the best one on the market, um, mainly for its features. It's got a lot going for it. It's got uh, ties into the Fitbit platform, which is easily, most definitely, the most usable out of the three. Um, it has waterproofing, which is great. Um, it's not too expensive. Um, it's about £120. Um, so it's kind of... It, it gives you a lot for your money, swim tracking, all that kind of thing. Now, there are a lot of Fitbits out there. I, there are. Looking at, the, looking at the, fit, the array of them, there's just it seems to be dozens and dozens. <laughs> does the Charge 3, does that hit the sweet spot? Are there newer ones? Is that an old one? How does it, where does that fit? 
So the Charge 3 is not the newest, the Inspire range is the newer um, range now, um, which has taken over a couple of their others. Um, the Inspire range is cheaper, but the HR version is the one to buy if you're going to go that route, because it's, um, it's slightly cheaper looking than the Charge 3, so it doesn't have an aluminium frame. Um, but the the Charge 3 sits in between the Inspire and sort of the smartwatch section of Fitbit's range, so the Ionic would be the better one for runners, but then if you are a runner, Garmin is what I would recommend over Fitbit anyway. Okay, so it's kind of something for everyone. Yeah. Um, how long do these things last for? Like, what, what should you be looking for in terms of longevity? Um, to, I mean, depends. it depends on, obviously, the more features that come in... Uh, battery life and stuff. Fitbit's pretty good. It's about five days for most of them on average, um, which isn't too bad if you compare that to sort of an Apple Watch, which you mainly typically have to charge every other day, if not most days. Um, but you five days is about what you get, and then longevity-wise, you're probably looking. I mean, two years. I think you probably get out of it without, but you might need to change the straps on it. So the, the device itself will be fine, but you might find that it gets a bit grubby, um, that the straps get a bit loose. Um, but this can, or oh, I've seen it solved by just buying a new strap, which you can get either through Fitbit or and Amazon. If, or whatever. And if I'm on a budget, what's, what's the best option to go for? Um, the Inspire HR is probably the best one. Um, because it's about £30 cheaper than the Charge 3, offers many of the same features, does look a little bit cheaper, but it but it does basically the same thing, still gives you advanced sleep tracking, which is amazing, um, and it sort of does what it needs to do. It will give you the same accuracy and stuff, and it ties into the Fitbit platform, which is really easy to understand. So. Well, that's it for this week's show. New episodes of the Pocketlink podcast will arrive every Friday with more news, interviews and buying guides for you to enjoy. We'd also love to hear your feedback to help us make the show even better. And if you have enjoyed it, please let your friends and colleagues know so they can enjoy it too. Until next Friday, have a good week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.